Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member special access to cool events behind the scenes footage and so much more plus you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon it's in you please be in it visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now that's podcast with an s thanks from kqed From KQD in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. More than 120 restaurants closed in San Francisco in 2021, and you get the feeling walking into many still open places that they're on their last legs. Dining simply has not come back, and though some businesses have prospered by making lemons into takeout, others are tapping out. And it's not just restaurants. The iconic Castro Theater is planning to switch to live events to survive. We'll talk about our trans-COVID cities. Then, Lunar New Year's next week, we'll talk to KQED's food editor, Luke Sai about the special dishes that Bay Area communities will be eating to ring in an abundant new year. That's all next. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Before the pandemic, our Bay Area cities were already changing. The last reporting I did before all hell broke loose was a hearing on the rise of ghost kitchens in San Francisco. Retail had entered a period of what would probably be long-term decline as stores get Amazoned. Streaming had sapped some of the power of the box office. And then came the pandemic, which has made the restaurant business in particular that much harder. Just in the past few weeks, Lucas Tap Room and Brown Sugar Kitchen, both in Oakland, have announced shutdowns. But there's a big old list of places that have shut down. Joining me to talk about what's been heading out and what might be coming in, we've got Peter Hartlob, culture critic and co-host of the Total SF podcast with the San Francisco Chronicle. Welcome, Peter. Thank you so much for having me today. As well as Becky Duffett, deputy editor of Eater SF, which has been keeping a running list. Thanks for joining us, Becky. Hey, thanks so much for having me. And of course, we want to hear from you. Restaurant closures, business closures, they affect us all in our neighborhoods and in our lives. Which closures have hit you the hardest? You can give us a call now at 866-733-6786. Share a memory from a place like Luca's or Brown Sugar Kitchen or an Irish pub out in Davis. Uh, DeVere's, I think it's called, or DeVere's Irish pub. Cliff House, Oliveto. There's so many. Give us a call. 866-733-6786, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, we're KQD Forum, or you can email your questions and comments and closure sadness to forum at kqed.org. Uh, Becky, let's start with you. Give us sort of a sense, as we were heading into the pandemic, was the state of the restaurant business in San Francisco strong, or were places already kind of teetering? I mean... 
even before the pandemic, more restaurants were closing than opening in San Francisco. Like, of course, it's a very difficult city to own a small business and to run a restaurant. Um, so all of the challenges that restaurants were facing were exasperated by the pandemic, but it's, it's always been a slight downward trend and then, you know, dipped off the cliff. Mm-hmm. What about other cities, like not San Francisco, but, you know, San Jose, Oakland, you know, Santa Rosa, Sacramento? You know, the heart of our reporting is really the San Francisco restaurant scene, but it's, mm-hmm. it's a trend that's true across the Bay Area. It's been an incredibly challenging time. Yeah. And what about you? Were there, I know you've been keeping this list, so you have like encyclopedic knowledge, but just on a personal level, what about your neighborhood or your, you know, place that you miss? I mean, it's heartbreaking. Every restaurant closure that we report, I, you know, it's really hard to hear from these restaurateurs and chef owners. Every time it it makes me feel a little ill when we get those emails on the tip line and just text and hear from people. Um, There have been so many. I can't believe we're starting our third year of this reporting going into it. Out of the gate, I was so sad to see Loconda close in the mission. I'm a big Mm. fan of the Delfina group. It was a Roman-style pasta place that did a really specific type of pasta that I don't see anyone doing quite so well these days. And I really miss that spicy, fatty amatriciana that I thought I was going to get to eat forever. Mm -hmm. Um, True Normand and the Fidei from the Bar Agricole group. I was really sorry to see that one go. Um, They served, they did a whole animal program that was super interesting. So you got to feast on pork chops and try rare Colorados. It was a really unique spot. Um, Last year in 2021, the closures kept rolling. I was so sad to see Namugaji go in Mission Dolores. That restaurant was really the heart of that group from the Lee brothers and I just I remember sitting in that restaurant with my little brother like nearly 10 years ago and him getting served that okonomiyaki with the bonito flakes undulating in your face and he just freaked out (laughs) yeah do you feel like you know San Francisco obviously known as a culinary destination both the city and the and the region do you think that There's been some room for new types of cuisine to gain, you know, adherence and and, and attention, even in all this turmoil? Or do you think it's just been kind of net negative, just bad? I think it's challenging across the board. There's certainly been hustlers to come out of it, and we're certainly seeing new restaurants open still and take some of these spaces that have been opened up. Um. I think we used to think of the non-restaurant brick and mortar restaurant alternative as pop-ups and it's expanded so much beyond that these days. You know, we see people selling food through Instagram platformed businesses, bakers doing really interesting drop-off and delivery options, cottage licenses, people legally cooking out of their homes in Alameda now. So, you know, it has opened up so many creative options for food makers that aren't just brick and mortar restaurants, but still still challenging yeah peter hartlob with the chronicle how about let's start on the on the personal side uh again what's a place that you know you're really gonna miss i'll tell you it's a, a place on the peninsula lee's comics a comic book store that so many of us on the peninsula have found is this kind of safe space if you were a little bit geeky and um and learned so much there i'm gonna miss that i'm gonna mm-hmm. miss 
pedal revolution in the mission district, this just creative, um, really community conscious place that was fixing bikes and just spreading knowledge. Um, And not just these places going away, but not getting a chance to say goodbye, Um, not getting a chance to go one more time to, um, you know, Luca's or I know so many people think about the Cliff House and the Stud Bar um, Slims. Slims really didn't close. It, it probably was going to close anyway. They say it was in motion, but we didn't get a chance to go and say goodbye after all these great memories. And, um, and, and there are just so many. We, we've lost so much. Yeah. You know, yesterday, Mina was talking with uh, Liz Weil, who was thinking of thinking with these climate futurists. You know, this guy, Alex Steffen, came up with this term trans-apocalypse, the trans-apocalypse. Like, basically, we think in terms of pre- and post-apocalypse, but really, uh, it's a trans. We're actually moving through this uh, apocalypse, and he's thinking about the climate there. In in a more limited sense here, I feel like being the trans-COVID city is this thing that's really hard to make sense of. We sort of expected it to end. We expected it to end, and instead, uh, we've had we've just had to keep living through this moment. And I I wanted to, uh, Peter, what's your sense? I mean, you've done some research into what happened, you know, during the 1918 pandemic and how the city sort of recovered from that. Um, give us a sense of what you learned from that history. You know, I'm, I'm so glad you brought that up because one of the first things I did when I was getting really sad about what was, was changing, what was closing, what might happen, I, I looked at what happened in 1918, 1919, when there was a very similar influenza and even more deadly influenza and found that once that was over in 1919, New Year's Eve was off the hook. I mean, everything was sold out. Every hotel was sold out. Every uh, theater was sold out. And then I started looking at other times that there were great change here, whether it was a 1906 earthquake, World War II. And there's this repeated history that during this horrible thing that's going on, you can't imagine the city coming back, but when it's over or when it wanes, people want to be around each other more than ever. And I know people think, oh, everybody's on streaming now. Everything's changed. Back then things were changing too. People still wanted to be around each other. And that's my hope that these bookstores and theaters that have held on that at the end of this, that they will have an opportunity to thrive because we're going to, we're going to miss it. We're going to want to be around each other again. And that's what happened the last time there was a big flu in San Francisco. Yeah. People forget radio was the new hotness back then. You had a kind of entertainment (laughs) in your home that you couldn't have, have gotten before. Um, Let's bring in Greg from Oakland. Welcome, Greg. Hey, how you folks doing? Good. Thanks for the call. Hey, I just wanted to give a shout out to Olivetto in Oakland in the Rock Ridge. You know, they uh it's an interesting thing. I was just listening to to the 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 guests there talking about about places, you know, with the owners and the staying open and the closing and and you know, Olivetto closed on New Year's Eve and uh a week later they opened back up because the neighborhood called on them and said, "Hey, we need this restaurant. We need this resource." And I just thought it was great that you know, they open back up because, you know, they realize that even though they Bob and Maggie really want to retire, you know, they they knew that they have a neighborhood institution. And so it's kind of in an interesting state of limbo. But 
I worked there. I ate there. I had my wedding dinner there. It was just so filled with so many great memories. And, um, and I just thought it was one worth talking about for a minute. I just wondered if either of the guests had any ideas about, you know, about Oliveto and its past, you know, Paul Canales from, uh, from Duende in Oakland started there and, you know, Paul Bertoli and, you know, they were back in the days of, you know, they were open when Chez Panisse first opened mm-hmm. and it's just a really neat piece of history. Yeah. I mean, what would you like to see happen with it, Greg? I, you know, it's hard to say, you know, I worked there for a year and Bob and Maggie are such a beautiful couple and they, they, they did such great things for, for, for just the restaurant industry in the Bay area in general. Um, I, I, man, I sure hope somebody could pick that place up and, and see if they want to continue it. Cause yeah. it's just such a, it's such a beautiful monument to, to what Bay area dining really was. And, um, I'm really sad to see it go, you know, they threw a, a going away party for all the crew throughout history. And it was awesome. There were a couple hundred people there who'd all cooked there and served there. And, um, everybody from wine to dine was there and, um, a few luminaries and, and I just love to see that place get picked up and, and, and carried on somehow, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. So. Uh, Becky, have you heard any rumors about somebody taking on Olivetto or are we thinking it's just kind of <laughs> going to keep creaking along? No, unfortunately I've not heard any rumors, but I will let everyone know if I do. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I, I agree with this caller. It's I'm really sad to see that restaurant go. It's received an outpouring of love and support from our readers when the news broke. And it, it's a really interesting case, not to you know use a morbid metaphor, but that restaurant announced its closure. It's on its deathbed and it's having this last gasp moment because diners were so, you know, just outpouring love and support for it that they decided to do, you know, a final ovation. <laughs> We're talking about restaurants and other businesses we've lost during the pandemic with Becky Duffett, deputy editor at Eater SF, and Peter Hartlob, culture critic and co-host of the Total SF podcast with The Chronicle. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for more after the break. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking about restaurants and other businesses we lost during the pandemic in the trans-COVID city. We've got Becky Duffett, deputy editor of Eater SF, and Peter Hartlob, culture critic and co-host of the Total SF podcast with the San Francisco Chronicle. And we would love to hear from you. Which of these closures hit you hardest? Doesn't have to be the most famous place, the iconic Bay Area place, although there's quite a lot of them on the list. It could just be the place that was on your corner. The number is 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. Get in touch. Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or KQED Forum. You can email questions and comments to forum at kqed.org. I want to get to some of 
your comments that have come in already. Michael tweets, The Tide House Brew Pub of Mountain View and its offshoot company, Hermitage Brewing of San Jose, a business that evolved from the early days of craft brewing to the full palette of taps of today's craft beer, helping other small brewers get their start by brewing under contract. Another listener tweets, The Empire Movie Theater in West Portal was one of the few remaining neighborhood movie theaters. I always preferred the nostalgia of going there over the giant cineplexes. Daniel tweets, oh, this is a tough one for me too, The Trappist, introduced us to the amazing and strong world of Belgian beers. Plus, Chuck and Aaron were always great and staffed the place with the best trap tenders. Looking at you, Ray, Nicole, and Ross. And another listener tweets, Betty's Ocean View Diner. Such a classic and just about the best breakfast anywhere. The best was sitting at the counter and watching the chefs work. Ah, there is a lot. It's not just closures. One of the things that is happening during this pandemic time is that people are changing their business models in different ways to try and make this stuff work. So the biggest one of these so far is the Castro's announcement that it will be moving, that it's got new management and that it's going to be doing much more live event programming. Peter Harlow, can you give us sort of what's the news there and what's the response been from the community of the Castro? Well, the Castro uh, is going to be run by another Planet Entertainment, which is running the Fox Theater and Bill Graham Civic Auditorium. Um, They're a local company, a Berkeley company, but they're a big company. Outside Lands is one of theirs, too. And um, they're going to take over programming at the Castro, which um, not a lot of details came out right away. There was some very valid concern that this wonderful uh, theater that reflects its neighborhood and its community in the Castro would change radically. And since then, another planet has been meeting with a lot of people and dribbling out a little bit of information, such as that maybe the movies, the movie screenings won't be gone as much as we thought. Um, hopefully the organ will be back, things like that. But it's a, it's a big change. And, um, you know, I'm personally cautiously optimistic, but there are a lot of people who are coming down on either side, that this could be a good thing or that this is something that could really hurt that community. And it's going to be really interesting when their first programming comes out in 2023, because uh, I think that's when we're really going to see what happens there. You know, a lot of the protests uh, and the outcry over the cash war, also that's just an LGBTQ plus institution and the new owners maybe didn't uh, don't have the same level of investment in making sure that it remains that way. Have they addressed some of those concerns as they started to come out in the community? They have. They say, you know, we don't plan to take away any popular programming. Um, my my question is is things like a Coquette's documentary. Um, Midnight Midnight Mass with Peaches Christ. Peaches Christ. They've already met with uh, Peaches Christ and and um, and other events like that that reflect the queer culture in the neighborhood. You know, to what extent is that going to change? And they're meeting with a lot of people and being careful about what they say, but they they are um, taking it very seriously. I can tell. And I, I think if you look at other venues that they've they've worked with or taken over. Bill Graham Civic Auditorium is a great example where a lot of people in the community had concerns. It was a similar thing. They had to come in and do millions of dollars of work on it. And I think it's worked out pretty well. So again, cautiously optimistic, but um, 
but definitely a lot of people are talking about it. Uh, Becky, for you, a lot of places pivoted like very quickly, actually shockingly quickly, you saw really the innovation in the food scene here to these different kinds of takeout options, you know, takeout cocktails, like just just a, a lot of really um, fascinating experiments in how to be a business when you couldn't really have people dining in. Who are the groups or the restaurants that seem to have really come out stronger? Like one that pops to mind for me is Komal in Berkeley. I feel like it's just I feel like they must be doing an absolutely, you know, unbelievable amount of business just on the on the takeout side alone. Yeah. I mean, restaurants are still pivoting and reinventing their business models. We're all so sick of the word pivot. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But yeah, I feel like pizza delivery really did okay. (laughs) Those guys came out on top. When I talked to pizza restaurants, some of them are almost afraid to, you know, sound too enthusiastic about how they're doing, but um, because they don't want to be insensitive to other restaurants that have Mm -hmm. had a hard time. But Square Pie Guys, for instance, those guys are tearing it up. That is some delicious square Detroit style pizza. So, yeah. Let's uh, bring in Don from El Cerrito. Welcome, hey, can Don. you hear me out there, y'all? Yeah, sure can, can Don. So uh, I walk around the Bay Area dreaming of walking into the somewhere, but the Black Hawk with Thelonious Monk. Hmm. That's all I do. Walking around the Bay Area, across the Bay, on San Francisco, whatever. What happened? I, I just dream of it. I mean, some of these places you're talking about, are is incredible. I've never heard of them. And I'm all, my eyes and ears and my senses and my body is always looking for spots, you know? But mm-hmm. what happened to Yoshi's on Fillmore? Yeah. That place, it was a, it's sad. I, I can't even walk past it. I can, it's so sad. Why would you build a building? Why would you have a building? It was like the music is it was like it was coordinated and every detail of it was for music. And it's it's like a it's like a ghost. How could that's a that's a crime? I'm sorry, I got to get off the air. I can't talk about it anymore. <laughs> oh, hey, thank you for the call, Don. I appreciate that. You, know, Peter Hallib, what I wanted to uh, throw to you from Don's comment is, you know, some of the kinds of venues, jazz venues, really strike me, particularly on the smaller side, seem like they're going to be some of the hardest places to come back because of just sort of the conditions of what they're doing are very COVID-y. So how can cities or how can people kind of support these places, particularly those that may be, you know, the last to come back? Yeah, I, I think about the Stork Club in Oakland, um, you know, these these hundred-year-old institutions in some cases that have been serving a community. I, I think one thing that's important, and I, I group movie theaters together, independent movie theaters and, and uh, uh, clubs that are showing live music is, um, you know, you, you look at the Castro and it may lose some repertory. There is repertory in the city and, and as upset as we are at, at some changes that may be going on at the Castro, uh, make a mental note to yourself that as you're walking around and missing things and sad about what's gone, that you're going to and patronizing the things that are still there. The Roxy is still around. The owners of the Balboa, I, I get emotional thinking about how they're doing pop-up beer sales and jazz and showing streets of San Francisco on a TV outside of their theater to stay alive. 
the Balboa is taking over the four star and is going to do repertory there. Um, so I, I do a lot of my, my, at the Chronicle, a lot of what I do is let's explore San Francisco and discover new things and the things that are still there and cherish them so they don't become the next headline. And I hope a lot of the people who are upset with the Castro understandably, you know, the fights are worth fighting for, but also take a look around at what is still there and what you value and make sure that, you know, as we're easing out of this, that you're, you're going there and spending money there too. Yeah. Let's bring in a case from Oakland. Welcome to the show. Hey, thanks. Um, I just wanted to give a shout out to coffee shops and bars Mm. as places that people go to, to socialize and like rub shoulders with strangers and talk to strangers and new people make new friends. I met my wife at a cafe in Berkeley and a lot of these places, you know, Albatross. Which one was it? Which one was it case? Uh, it uh, was formerly uh, local one, two, three. Now it's become a new oh, coffee yeah. shop, I think high wire, but just down the street at Albatross, we used to go to like pub quiz, you know, trivia nights and stuff like that and just meet new people. And I just feel like, as a society, we're sort of missing out on that part of our socialization. And, you know, it just is sort of adds to that sense of isolation. Mm-hmm. Isolation and also sort of grouping by algorithm. <laughs> you know, I mean, these places were, were, as you noted, you know, they just kind of mix people together in sort of random configurations or at least semi-random configurations versus mixing people together based on uh the algorithms that result from knowing tons about you because you've generated so much data on social media. Let's go uh, straight to uh, Todd in Berkeley. Coming to you right now, Todd. Welcome to the show. Thank you. So I'm calling in about something that's a restaurant closure and not COVID related. I just found out yesterday that Cesar in North Berkeley, which is got one of the best bar programs in the East Bay, fabulous food, great atmosphere. I think it's been there for almost 25 years, is having to close down because Chez Panisse, who um, owns the property, is shutting them down. Um, they won't renew the lease in July. And I think, you know, from given Gal- Alice's attitude toward community and food resources, think it's really hypocritical and they're taking away a wonderful institution that's really worked as a neighborhood meeting place for almost 25 years. I hope people are going to put pressure on the board of shape and needs to reconsider that. Yeah. And I'll say this is the first time I've ever been upset about something like this enough to call a radio station. Oh, wow. Well, <laughs> thank you. We're, we're honored, Todd. Um, appreciate that. Becky, Uh, This kind of goes to one of the crucial structural elements of the restaurant business in San Francisco, which is the leases are extremely expensive and staffing costs are very high. What's the what are some of the solutions that people have come up with to deal with the structural problems of the Bay Area? I don't know if there's any perfect solution. People are scraping it together and trying to make it work. I mean, the crux of the issue is that restaurants have lost so much revenue during the pandemic. There are typically three branches of their business that they rely on between sit-down dining, takeout and delivery, and catering and events. Um, And when they were reduced to only takeout and delivery, that cuts them down to a small portion of their sales, and it typically has the lowest margins. 
Um, and then rent is high in the Bay, as you say, and there has been no, you know, overreaching legislation or grant programs to deal with that. So, you know, any help that they're getting varies county by county. There is some proposed legislation going through on the local level and grants and programs, but they have to get in line to apply for those. So when we speak with restaurant owners again and again, we hear that they're often relying on the kindness of their landlords to work with them. And, you know, that goes a variety of ways. Yeah. <laughs> I was about to say a tried and true technique, no? Yeah. Um, uh, which business closure hit you the hardest out there? You can give us a call, 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. Just to think about how hard some of these structural challenges are, uh, I think it was Espresso Roma on the corner of uh, Ashby and College in, in Berkeley said their lease payment was $18,000 and they were clearing $300 a day um, from the restaurant. Just so, I mean, these, these are not really workable uh, businesses in a lot of cases. Uh, comments coming in. Um, Charlie writes, yes, so sad, missing flavors and spices. In Novi Valley, it seems the mid-low level restaurants are doing best. Mesopotamia Kitchen, Novi, Hamano Sushi, Baco, Portal in Oakland. Places that work hard to serve the neighborhood in the $15 to $25 range of meals would take out on delivery. Is that market trend right? Charlie wants to know, Becky. I agree with Charlie. I feel like this was true before the pandemic and it's even more true now. We kind of see a gap in mid-level affordable restaurants in San Francisco. It's really hard to run an affordable, nice sit-down family-style restaurant. Um, So you see takeout and delivery restaurants that excel at volume and then you see very high-end experiences. Mm. Mm -hmm. Um, I feel like tasting menus used to be $100. Now I'm seeing them $150 and more. Um, there's just a big gap there in, in what restaurants can do. Yeah. Let's bring in Liz from Newark, a uh, restaurant owner. Welcome to the show. Hi, good morning. Uh, I just want to say thank you for doing this. I have been listening to your show for years. My husband and I are diehard fans of the forum. And um, so I own a restaurant. I opened it literally right before the pandemic. We hadn't oh. even had our first anniversary when we had to close our store, we closed it for a while, reopened part-time, and went through the hurdles, as same as everyone else. Um, I am now at a stage where... Um, <laughs> I'm so sorry. No, we're listening. Go ahead. I might have to close my store. Mm. And we're doing everything we can. We're literally just throwing thing, everything we have at it, like... Whatever you can imagine we're doing, um, I've lost staff. I, I just, you know, every day it's a circus. <laughs> oh. Nothing is the same, right? And, and my, my thing is that, you know, everybody talks about let's support local restaurants, let's support local chefs, let's do this. But unfortunately, as a restaurant owner, I don't really see that. I don't... Um, it's um, it, it's not it's not where it should be, whether mm-hmm. if it's from our government or from our local um, offices or even the people. And it, it is very heartbreaking for yeah. someone like me who did all the right things, you know, went to culinary school, eventually got my own restaurant, did something unique. And now I'm at a stage where 
I don't know where I stand, frankly. <sighs> and, um, you know, I, it is what it is. And sometimes, you know, you have to accept whatever is going to happen. But the only thing I want to share is that how heartbreaking it is and how mm-hmm. much I feel for those restaurants that have closed. Mm-hmm. I was so blessed enough to keep it open as long as I have with the support of family and other um, community members within the customers that I have. But um, Liz, you've got to tell us what the name of your restaurant is and where is it. So we appreciate your support so much over the years. And you got to tell us, where where's your restaurant? So I'm located in Newark, California. Mm-hmm. It's uh, next to Fremont. We are uh, located on Central Avenue. And, um, and what's it the called? Name of my res- the name of, name of my restaurant is Bear Bites, like a bear, uh-huh. California bear, yeah. Bites, B-I-T-E-Z as in zebra. So it's, a, it's kind of a unique concept. It's basically a whole new category of food. I've combined an American classic burger and wrapped it French with French puff pastry. So it's baked in the oven, and the inside is layers of gooey cheese with meat and tomatoes and pickles and wrapped in French flaky pastry. And um, it's really unique. It's different. It's uh you know, I, I yeah. do my own butchering, grind my own meat, do everything from scratch as I was, you know, trained and as how I appreciate food. And uh, I just hope that, you know, people go bear bites <laughs> in Newark. Um, thank you so much for that call, Liz. We've been talking about restaurants and businesses we've lost during the pandemic and those struggling to stay alive like bear bites in Newark. We've been joined by Peter Hartlob, culture critic and co-host of Total SF, and Becky Duffett, the deputy editor of Eater SF. We'll be back with more after the break. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.